Welcome to Camthropod, the Cambridge Anthropology Podcast. This is episode 25, The Future of the Anthropological Journal. In this episode, we're going to discuss the state of the anthropological journal in the contemporary discipline, its challenges, its promises, its bottlenecks, and its affordances. We're going to do this by staying rather close to home and talking about the Cambridge Journal of Anthropology. Uh, it's been the in-house journal of the Department of Social Anthropology here in Cambridge since 1973, when it began as a platform for students and faculty alike to experiment with new ideas and ways of presenting arguments. Theories, rather than descriptions, was the aim outlined in the first issue. Over the decade, it has become more global in readership and authorship, and is now an entirely open access publication published by Berghahn, and widely known for its, for its special issue model, which allows a part of every issue to be taken up by exciting and insightful collections of articles curated by guest editors. Discussing all this and more will be Andrew Sanchez, the outgoing editor of the journal, Liana Chua, and Natalia Buitron, the new incoming editors. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hello. So, starting with Andrew. Andrew is the uh, Associate Professor at the Department of Social Anthropology here in Cambridge. Andrew, when you took up the editorship, your aim was to both take the journal further out of Cambridge and assess all work without regard to an author's politics, reputation, or professional connections. Why was this important to you? Um, well, you know, I mean, over the years as an author, I'd had some really great experiences with journals and some really fantastic editors, but I'd also had some really, really bad experiences. So I've submitted papers to top tier journals, not got reviews back for six months to a year. The criteria by which things were published is unclear. Communication with the editor isn't great. And you always have this thing with journals where you're kind of not sure whether or not some things are trendy, whether the journal likes things or doesn't like them. Um, and to be blunt, it just really annoyed me. And I thought, now that I'm going to edit a journal, I've at least got a bit of a chance to try and you know, make this journal run slightly differently. So for me, the most important thing was that it was supposed to be as transparent as possible and that people knew where the goalposts were. And because it had been an in-house journal, I also wanted it to be clear that this wasn't a venue for just publishing things for people based in Cambridge. So that's kind of how I approached it. Does any one article stick in your mind as particularly memorable from your tenure? There, there are lots of really amazing articles um, in every issue. Um, I think every article is absolutely amazing, obviously. Um, so I, will, I wouldn't really differentiate them according to quality, but there are a few that are a bit more memorable. So we had a great article in 2021 in a special issue called Beyond Revolution. And the article is by Maria Malmström and it's called The Desire to Disappear. And it's an ethnography of torture survivors. And what really, really struck me about that article was just the raw data. So the data is primary data from the author and secondary data from court reports and things like this. And it, I had found it genuinely moving reading it. Um, it just gave me a sense of just the kind of, like the, the sadness and the hopelessness of violence. And I found it very, very moving. And that, that really stands out in my mind as something that does something ethnographically very well. Mm -hmm. uh, your first issue after taking over the editorship from uh, Marion MacDonald in 2018 uh, was the wonderfully titled Cannon Fire, Decolonising the Curriculum. 
your opening words for which also began with an affecting and personal story of race and anthropology. Um, for a journal that has come to be known for its special issues, this collection of articles was brought together by yourself rather than by a call to papers. Can you tell us a little bit how, uh, about how it came about? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, so the background to this is that I've been interested in ethnicity for quite a long time. So my research work is largely about class and labour, but I published like three articles that were about how ethnicity related to class. So I've been ticking over my mind for a long time. And then around early 2017, the most recent iteration of decolonizing the curriculum started to gather steam. And a lot of people started to talk about race more in anthropology. And I thought that was a welcome development. But then I also thought that the way in which some people were discussing race was a little bit too simplistic and a bit blunt. Um, so, I mean, there were, there were a few people around who were kind of, you know, presenting themselves as being subaltern subjects on the basis of where they come from. And then you'd find out that, you know, their, their parents were diplomats and politicians and they grew up <laughs> in a house with maids and cooks and they went to fancy private schools and their mum and dad were paying for their flat in Islington and things like that. And I started to think to myself, actually, you know, we need to think about race more. So I had the idea I wanted to put this issue together in early 2017. And then I was asked if I'd start editing the journal separately. And for various reasons, it transpired that the first issue I'd be taking on would be late 2018. And there wasn't something already in the pipeline to publish. So I was going to have to get the issue together myself, you know, fairly quickly. And I thought, well, this is just a coincidence of things coming together and I'll do that. Um, so the original idea the issue was going to be scholars from Global South institutions giving perspectives on decolonizing the curriculum. And then we were having discussions in the department with our students. And I was watching you know, some of the frictions and some of the challenges of how people in you know, elite institutions like this were talking about these things. And I thought, well, actually, maybe this is a chance for people to work it through. And then I went and found people who'd like to contribute. Um, some of them were people I knew already, like um, like Jovan Scott Lewis. Others were amazing people I didn't know, but I'd read their work for years, like Zeus Leonardo, the critical whiteness studies scholar. And that's how it came about. How do you feel the movement to decolonize the curriculum impacted upon the kinds of ideas and discussions the journal brokered during your tenure? Well, I mean, there's um, there is a slight tension here, which is that the first editorial which was in that decolonizing the curriculum issue, I said very strongly, we're not paying attention to an author's politics, and I meant it. But having made that first issue the decolonizing one, it meant that people of a certain political persuasion were more likely to submit work to the journal. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a whole bunch of issues that we published, which, you know, if I was being a little reductive, they're kind of issues that are politically on a similar side of the fence. Mm -hmm. So we've got this fantastic special issue on revolution, um, a great issue on prisons, um, an issue on states of feeling, this, which is this year, and another one early next year. So I think it kind of attracted people to submit work to us. Um, but in terms of like whether or not the politics of decolonizing impacted the editorial work, for me, the main factor was, you know, it has to be, as I say, open and transparent. So for me, the idea was, 
I don't care who you know, whether anyone likes you, whether people respect you, I don't care where you study, if you've got an idea, send us an article. And I think for me, that's, you know, that's the absolutely inviolable principle by which the journal should run. Brilliant. Well, we're going to come back to you later, uh, Andrew, when we um, have a little bit of a group discussion. But now I'm going to introduce uh, Liana Chua, who is the Tunku Abdul Rahman University Assistant Professor in Malay World Studies at the Department of Social Anthropology here in Cambridge. Liana, your work to date has a remarkable ability to cut across some of the recent interests of this department, so Christianity and conversion, emotion, belief, alterity and affinity, and bring to greater prominence some issues that we should perhaps be talking about and doing more. I'm thinking here of your work across disciplinary boundaries through collaborations with conservationists and public engagement and your work with Mark Elliott on um, Alfred Gell and on the relationship between contemporary media and the Anthropocene. Um, what are you working on at present? Yeah, so at present um, I'm, I'm mainly focused on trying to tie up uh, what's now turned into a five and a half year long European Research Council grant on the global nexus of orangutan conservation. So this is really where, you know, where my interest in the Anthropocene and the politics of biodiversity conservation but also indigenous engagements with kind of um, broader um, international movements, um, international politics kind of come together. Um, and I think, you know, sort of going back to your point about engaging across boundaries, I think this, this whole project actually started out as very much a kind of ethnographic exploration and analysis of the social, political, cultural, aesthetic dimensions of this one great big conservation nexus. Um, but what's been interesting in the last couple of years is that we found it's really morphed in various ways and it's really been taken up um, and, and it's sort of been picked up by quite a lot of conservationists who are actually very interested in using our insights and our methods um, for their particular projects and agendas, which, which presents all sorts of interesting ethical and political challenges. Um, but what this has meant is that in the last couple of years, we've really been focusing on the more applied dimensions of, of our project through a number of collaborations, um, uh, various other hookups with orangutan conservation scientists and uh, practitioners. So that's I think that's how we're going to see out the project in the next... Uh, nine months or so, we're going to be um, just kind of pushing uh, the applied dimensions, the engaged dimensions of that project a little bit, and uh, and we'll see how that goes. Um, I mean, after that, I've got a few ideas. I'm not entirely sure yet. Um, I'm very interested in, in the idea of forest corridors as these um, multi-species conservation spaces and assemblages. Um, but at the same time, I, I'm kind of I'm being tugged back to my old field site as well, um, back towards Rawak, where I've worked since um, 2003. Um, and I'm, I'm quite keen to, at some point, do a sort of archive-based project on the link between our missionary work and um, development, or ideas of development in, in rural areas in Sarawak. Um, and I'm also quite interested in evolving questions of sovereignty and independence in, in Sarawak, which are really kind of kicking off at the moment. So, I don't know, we'll see. Brilliant. Uh, despite taking on the role this month before um, Natalia joins as co-editor next year, you're not new to the journal. In 2021, you guest edited the journal along with um, Omri Grinberg uh, on the topic of witnessing, truths, technologies, transformations. Uh, in this special issue, an article of your own discussed the question of anthropological responsibility, truth-telling and accountability. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about this special issue? Um, so the special issue itself is, is called Witnessing, Truths, Technologies and Transformations um, and essentially has three very broad aims. One aim is to just try and draw together um, lots of different theoretical, conceptual, ethnographic angles on this theme of witnessing which had really been looked at by lots of different anthropologists and lots of different ethnographic settings but in very different ways um, in previous years. Um, so we're looking for example at um, you know, a whole bunch of different angles on witnessing that could, that could include anything from 
ethnographic analyses of very kind of you know classical quintessential witnessing spaces like humanitarian media, you know, uh, testimonial collection, um, to slightly less obvious phenomena that you may not necessarily have thought of as forms of witnessing, um, but that could nevertheless be understood through witnessing as a lens. So, um, for example, spirit relations, um, which was um, part of my own article, and also ethics committee meetings as you know a, a version of witnessing, of collective witnessing, which was really really interesting. So that was one thing to just try and draw together all these different takes on witnessing. Um, another thing we were trying to do was, was try and pull together what we called a distinctively anthropological approach to witnessing, which I guess is you know it's quite a big claim, but I think essentially what that meant was that um, we felt that in a lot of previous anthropological takes on witnessing, um, there was an overwhelming tendency to focus on either the content of what was being witnessed, so like testimonies and stuff or on the subjectivities that were being produced, so you know, victims, witnesses, um, those who bear witness, and so on. And what we were really interested in was trying to push beyond that initial, fo that, that sort of conventional focus on semantics and subjectivities towards a more relational understanding, and, and therefore we thought a more anthropological understanding of witnessing itself, and, and to try to understand those kinds of messy spaces and relations and processes, those weird gray areas you know, in between those um, semantics and subjectivities. Um, and then finally, our third aim, which was a bit more reflexive, was to try and put ethnographic analyses of witnessing in conversation with more reflexive discussions of anthropological witnessing and the anthropologist as witness, which hadn't really been done previously. So this was really our attempt to just pull those um, th those two separate conversations together and to, and to think critically about what, what each of those could bring to um, the other. So yeah, that, that's the sort of overall um, special issue. And I could say more, but I think I'll just leave it there. Natalia. Natalia Breitren is the Jessica Sainsbury Lecturer in the Anthropology of Amazonia at the Department of Social Anthropology here in Cambridge. Natalia, despite joining the department only this year, you've already organised two important events that address pertinent issues in the contemporary discipline. The first saw the launch of a special issue of Ethnos under the title Governing Opacity, which explored the politics of, uh, and governance of mental opacity. The second, The State of Amazonia, examined what Amazonian anthropology can teach us about autonomy and ownership writ large. Uh, what else are you working on at present? Thanks. Um, I really enjoy organising those events, actually, and they allow me to get to know the people in Cambridge, which was great. So I would say I'm working on several things, but my main current project is profoundly interested in questions of sovereignty coming out of Amazonia. So I'm looking at how political, indigenous political collectives and communities are understanding and engaging with questions of self-determination. And I would say that I'm, I'm kind of finding two different groups of collectives, um, just kind of revising the literature and engaging with these movements uh, remotely. Uh, some of them are very much interested in territorial autonomy, and they see territory as kind of the concrete core for achieving a good life, not just for themselves as humans, but also for the animated environment and the landscape, etc. And there's another uh, set of kind of collectives that are working more around ideas of kind of multiculturalism and trying to achieve a more symmetric uh, relationship with the state. And they're really kind of interested in kind of being primary subjects and citizens. And it's more about citizenship, really. And territory occupies a more sort of imaginary um, a locus in their, in their claims. So I'm kind of interested in comparing those different agendas where territory plays very different roles. So you might see the former more in terms of kind of what we have come to call um, the cosmopolitical framework, and the second one more in terms of kind of multicultural politics, which is a much more kind of humanist project that we've known for a long time. 
some kind of interested in tracing the genealogies, but also the relationship between these different kinds of projects, but also um, comparing what's happening across the Americas, because we often talk about autonomy when we refer to South America indigenous politics, and sovereignty has become much more of a kind of the, the key kind of uh, buzzword in North America, indigenous politics. I'm interested in why, why you know, we have this difference, uh, because there is a lot of dialogue across the continent. So that's, that's sort of my primary project, and I'll be doing field work next summer for that, just before I start with Cambridge Anthropology mm -hmm. Journal. Um, I'm also working, because I've, I've really enjoyed collaborative projects. In fact, those two events were mostly based on collaborative engagements with colleagues, um, and I, I found them the most rewarding and, and productive, actually. So I'm currently uh, working on a project called Nightmare Egalitarianism that is um, sort of evolving of a conference, uh, the ASA conference recently, uh, with Hans Steinmuller and Florian Wolfred, who is actually based at the Ilia State University of Georgia and part of our newly formed editorial board. So I'm very excited about that. And he um, and, and, and the two of us basically are working on um, ways in which we can explore egalitarian projects um, as sort of motivated by particular nightmares, which is something that sort of comes across in our, our field, field works and field sites. And, uh, but also um, the nightmares that haunt egalitarian projects, so once they're sort of um, already kind of implemented, what sort of nightmares people find themselves kind of having to deal with and navigating. And finally, I have a side but very interesting project uh, that I'm uh, beginning to kind of think about with Patrick O'Hare, who's based at the University of St. Andreas, about indigenous writing uh, in connection to sort of more alternative forms of book production, street grassroots production that he's been looking at in terms of kind of recycling movements uh, from South America. And often, uh, I, I guess our main aim is really to connect um, what tend to be studied as very separate projects, like indigenous politics, is very different from, say, straight um, urban formal politics. And where we're seeing a lot of uh, crossovers and synergies, so we want to investigate that connection in terms of writing and textual production, marginal textual production coming out of South America. So Liana and Natalia, what are some of your aims for the journal? Ooh. <laughs> Yeah, we've been we've been chatting a lot about this recently. Yes. Um, I, I I mean I guess we could maybe divide it into more immediate and concrete aims. And yes, more, and more kind of long term. Yeah, broader aims. I mean I, yeah. I think in terms of more concrete aims, you know, like Andrew, I think we really really like to try and get more standalone articles submitted. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think Andrew's done an amazing job of of building up CJA's reputation as this kind of special issue journal that does amazing special issues and stuff. Um, but it, it'd be great if we could try and just push out a little bit more and expand it, you know, make it a bit more than just a special issue journal, make it a, a sort of venue that actually anybody, as Andrew said, anybody anywhere in the world, whatever their background, their, their politics, mm -hmm. their connections, their, their sort of disciplinary orientations might actually want to submit to and find it, a, find it a fun place to submit to, which I think is, is you know, really important from my point of view as well. It's, yeah. it's got to be a good experience. Um, you know, it, it shouldn't be the kind of torturous, um, long drawn out <laughs> <laughs> waiting process of being left hanging that you often find with some of the kind of bigger um, uh, top tier yeah. journals. So, so I think that's really important. Um, one other thing is that we're really keen to diversify and expand um, our different, the different kinds of um, styles and kinds of articles that Genres, we might yeah. uh, present. Uh, and one of these uh, is, of course, our reviews feature. We've got um, a fantastic uh, range of new plans uh, for our review section, which we'd like to try and integrate a little bit more closely to the, to the main body of the journal. Um, and we're now starting to solicit various new 
contributions to that review section that would actually just sort of push the boundaries of what we think of as a reviewable piece. So rather than just looking at books, like monographs. Like high rank in English. Uh, yeah, process. exactly, <laughs> high rank in yeah. English stuff. We, we, yeah. we want to try and just diversify things a little right. bit. We want to play around with different formats. So we're, we're introducing a, a couple of new um, key uh, review Reviews, features, yeah. and including um, one that's called um, Re-Reviewed, which is about looking anew at out-of-print books, but also looking at books that haven't hitherto been published in English yeah. and, and assessing their significance, the contemporary state of the discipline. Um, and so the other one is widening the frame, which is all about trying to look beyond just books as reviewable objects um, and, and kind of looking at films, exhibitions, art. Yeah, I think the, the idea there is really to kind of expand the view of what counts as anthropological knowledge. Mm -hmm. So um, who produces it and, you know, in what form is it being produced? So just sort of, you know, if we cannot um, submit articles, but potentially review conferences, for instance, mm. you know, where early career researchers uh, are presenting really exciting innovative research, but, you know, they need to wait for five years before that gets published. So if we can start sort of, you know, reviewing proceedings mm -hmm. of conferences, that would give them an outlet as well. And it would be really interesting and would probably promote early conversations that would foster collaboration. So things like that, I think, would be really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we're at, a, we're at a very interesting moment, you know, in, in sort of disciplinary yeah. terms. There are a lot of conversations taking place now, um, you know, where we're kind of, we're reflexively, we're sort of scrutinizing the, the ethical, political um, implications, right, of how yeah. that knowledge is being produced and, and evaluated and disseminated. So yeah. I think, you know, I, I, I don't think we need to necessarily overhaul the conventional journal format, but I think no. it'd be nice if we were precipitating some of those conversations and, you know, part of those conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, maybe we can bring um, Andrew back in here. What are some of the challenges facing anthropological journals today? Um, right, well, I mean, my perspective as an editor is that even only over a time period of only five years, it's harder now to get people to review things than it was previously. I think one of the main challenges is really just boiling down to the high level of workload in an academic career and the extreme mm. professional stress that people are under. So most journals, they function almost entirely on goodwill. Mm -hmm. The editorial board does it for nothing. The editor, editor does it for nothing. The reviewers do it without being paid. And um, the authors don't get paid for doing it either. Some of them are actually paying the presses to publish. Mm -hmm. um, so I mean, I think it's increasingly hard to get people to commit to doing that work. Um, I think that's a big challenge. Um, so sometimes for these reviewing these special issues, to find two readers I sometimes have to invite I think I've gone as high as 12 or 13 people oh. I've had to invite to get them that's nice. a big issue mm -hmm. yeah I would sort of add to that that well I mean the scholarly um, exchange and communication is a highly profitable business as we know which means that we are at risk that our research agendas become sort of hijacked and dominated by commercial, large commercial publishers. So those journals that are not part of that, you know, kind of suffer from precisely this, you know, mm -hmm. making the labor of love that sustains them, um, sustainable in the long term. So it is it is really about kind of making that labor of love um, ethical and sustainable, because obviously it can, it can also lead to um, a very toxic uh, system of exploitation, <laughs> as we've known from previous experiences, uh, you know, where it's kind of based on unremunerated labor from young scholars primarily. So I think that that is one of the biggest challenges when we are thinking about more creative, more transparent, more accessible 
journal publishing. Mm. But of course, at the same time, it often feels like yeah. we're kind of we're rubbing up against these, you know, yeah. persistent kind of institutional right. neoliberal problems where we're kind of working, we're working in a sort of culture where, you know, people are coming under intense pressure, not just from their workload, but in terms of things like worrying about how to get tenure, how to get promotion, Absolutely. you know, how to get yeah. funding, um, restrictions on where you can and can't publish. So one of the things that we're grappling with at the moment, for example, is that, you know, there are a lot of universities um, outside uh, the global north, for example, that have very, very specific requirements on where yeah. their academics can publish. You have to be published in a journal that's indexed in Scopus, for example, mm -hmm. otherwise that doesn't count. You know, mm -hmm. it's got to be this or that, you've got to uh, kind of tick off a certain number of checkboxes, and if you don't, you can't publish in that journal. Um, and these are very real pressures that I think mm -hmm. you know a lot of our peers, especially in, in universities in the global south, for example, facing, have to yeah. have to face. Um, and there's only so much that we can say. Um, the question is how we actually do things to, to to sort of increase that access and make the journal a little bit more kind of uh, open and accessible to these colleagues, but in a way that doesn't then put them in a difficult position institutionally uh, or professionally. And, and I think that's a really, really difficult challenge. So finally, is there a role for the anthropological journal, that most academy of iterations, beyond the academy? How can we try and contribute to and shape ideas beyond our immediate conversations? Um, so if I try to think about that question as a journal editor, I would think that the most important thing for me is to foster public-oriented scholarship. Mm -hmm. And by that I mean scholarship that strives to publish in ways that will make academic research understandable for larger audiences, intelligible, that is like spell out clearly and often concisely, not only its societal relevance, uh, the merits of, of his research, but also the ethical soundness of his methodology. I think that's really mm -hmm. clear. And so often, you know, it's a, a scholarship that reduces the use of jargon and kind of, uh, it's also attempting to explore non-textual and other experimental formats, not, so not exclusively, but I, I would sort of approach it that way, you know, the, um, to include uh, diversity of formats and diversity of genres and different ways of writing as well. Uh, basically, publish work that cares, <laughs> mm. and that you know means all of these things, you know, methodologically, scientifically, but also explorations, you know, with with diversity. Yeah, I mean, because I think one of the yeah. you know one of my big gripes with I guess more conventional benchmarks of you yeah. know good anthropology in inverted commas consists of right is, is this idea that good anthropology has to be theoretical, yeah. or it has to have some kind of big you know yeah. con conceptual or theoretical contribution to make and. You know, all too often I've kind of seen examples of really, really good ethnographic analysis, mm -hmm. you know, engaged scholarship, often scholarship that's very grounded in specific um, relational obligations yeah. um, to one's fieldwork interlocutors being dismissed um, or just kind of being shunted down the hierarchy it's because it's not theoretical enough, right, <laughs> in inverted commas. And it, it, it sort of drives me mad. And I think it is really important to, to both me and Natalia that, you know, we are really kind of reaching beyond these these benchmarks and to think maybe more expansively and creatively about what what is worth publishing and what you really want to see out there in an anthropological journal. We've made a start in a number of ways, for example, by, re by expanding the review section, um, by, by, by trying to hook up a little bit more with Camthropod, for example, just experimenting with different formats for disseminating what mm -hmm. we're talking about. Um, but also, I think, you know, just thinking more pragmatically, one thing I'd like to think about as we get more submissions is, is to really just encourage authors who have maybe written an article with some potential 
um, to submit to places like the Conversation or to Sapiens or to you know other more kind of public facing outlets. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just you just need a bit of a nudge from an editor or, for, or for some, from somebody who actually knows that work to just mm -hmm. stick your neck out and try, right? Um, so I think practically that's one of the ways I'm just going to be trying to encourage a little bit more public engagement, you know, based on the research that the journal is publishing. Just, just kind of individual encouragement can actually make a huge amount of difference, I think. Mm. Thank you ever so much. So before we finish, maybe we can have a quick plug for the current September 2022 issue and the upcoming early 2023 issue in the pipeline. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the current issue is called States of Feeling, and it's all about how bureaucrats in different institutions, state institutions, NGOs and so on, how they're engaging with their work on terms that are emotional and affective. And I think it's really, really great it's a really great issue. Makes some very smart theoretical points, but it's also got a good range of ethnographic cases. I think it's a very nice issue. And the issue that's coming out in the spring of 2023 is going to be called Held in Suspense. And again, it's another very interesting issue. It's about how precarious people in different ethnographic contexts around the world are in a position of waiting for the state to appear or the state to leave them alone. So that's the idea. They're people whose lives are in suspension, wondering what's going to happen next and how do kind of big structures of power interact with that experience. So those are the two issues. Brilliant, thank you ever so much. Um, so let's end by celebrating and thanking uh, Andrew Sanchez for his tenure as editor of the Cambridge Journal of Anthropology and welcoming our new editors, Liana Chua and Natalia Ritron. Thank you all for listening and thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.